This is Internet Marketing. Brought to you by Site Visibility at sitevisibility.co.uk. This is Internet Marketing. Now, before we start today, we'd like to encourage anyone looking for help with their digital marketing to get in touch with Site Visibility. Whether you have a burning digital marketing question or you're looking for an agency to work with, I'd love to hear from you. Give them a call on plus four four one two seven three seven three three four three three, or you can fill out the form at sitevisibility.co.uk slash contact, or alternatively, you can speak to either Scott or Sean via the live chat function on the site. They'd be more than happy to help. Now, today, I'm joined by Tess Underhill, Digital Marketing Executive at Site Visibility. Tess, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, Andy, apart from being obnoxiously warm. But it is yes. it is a lovely day in Brighton, so I can't complain. Yes, yeah, um, normally, I see I'm used to speaking to guests who are thousands of miles away over Skype. <laughs> yeah. You're probably about, mm, I would say, probably about... Probably about 1,350 metres away as the crow flies. <laughs> yeah, pretty low. And we're still using Skype. Never mind. Okay. Um, tell us about yourself. What do you do there at Site Visibility? Um, yeah, so I've been at Site Visibility now for about a year and a half. Um, I actually came in into the account management team. but I've recently moved into the delivery team um, as a digital marketing executive. Um, so mostly I work on tasks like producing on-page and blog content, working on content marketing strategies with the team, uh, doing competitor analysis, um, and also performing technical and content audits um, kind of across our client portfolio, really. So a range of different tasks. Um, and before before working at SiteBiz, um, I actually worked kind of in-house for a lot of brands. So I've worked for Monster Energy and Sailor Jerry Rum yeah. and uh, Oakley and kind of, yeah, working within those big sort of larger brand entities and seeing how they work but I actually also ran my own strength and conditioning fitness business for three years um, which was really awesome worked with a big wide variety of people mm. so um, I'm actually really lucky now that I've had in-house experience working for myself experience and also now agency experience so I've worked on a lot of different projects and kind of in different industries so it's been quite quite diverse yeah really but all all in in respect of what I'm talking about today, all focused on very different target audience and um, different users. So, yeah, it's been quite a quite a good intro for that, really. Well, a very diverse career, and I wanted to specifically uh, sort of home in on today's show, if we could, on sort of content writing, user experience, uh, that yeah. side of things. So that's one of your specialities. For those who are sort of new to UX, how could they get started? I mean, do you have any good resources or advice for our listeners? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always found communication and sort of human relationships on the whole really fascinating. And that natural curiosity has really pushed me towards being interested in UX and content design. Um, yeah. And I know that there's a lot of people who do different things, whether it's like anthropology or um, social sciences that actually, without realising it, actually have a really good knowledge of sort of user behaviours and things like that. Yeah. Um, so anyone who's not actually had much of an introduction to UX or content design before but works in digital, I definitely recommend going to some talks at Brighton SEO, which is our sister conference, or um, my personal recent favourite, which is UX Camp Brighton. Mm. And actually at UX Camp, which this year was in the skiff, brilliant. And that sort of started me off on a more, uh, I guess, like official journey looking at user content, um, content design in a user-centred way. 
but there's also yeah there's some great slack threads you can follow and twitters like at ladies that ux which is um obviously for for women in ux yeah but yeah i think I think UX and UI design is something that's been quite well known in the digital space and has been around a while, but user-centered content design as its own role is now becoming more and more important alongside these practices. And it's something that can actually really be easily implemented yeah. by in people's roles. You don't have to be a content designer um, necessarily to incorporate those practices. Um, so yeah, for anyone else that hasn't had necessarily an introduction to it, a really good example of how content design has been implemented within actually the government digital service. GDS, yes. Yeah, yeah. which is which is a massive thing um, at the moment. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have noticed the kind of overhauls they've done and improvements they've made. Yeah. Um, you can look at the um, gov.uk guidance forward slash uh, content design page. Yeah. And it gives the it actually gives a breakdown of what they've done in terms of content design, what it's meant and how to basically fulfill their users' needs and what their acceptance criteria is. Mm. And also Scroll run a really good course uh, for content design, which I actually went on myself recently, which is really interesting as someone who's worked more in digital marketing and not worked for government or council. Yeah. We'll put that GDS link in the show notes, actually. I wanted to just um, talk about, because there's a you know, obviously, there's a lot, lot of different ways that you can communicate with the audience, and I know internally sometimes within businesses there can be sort of mixed opinions about how to communicate with them. How should businesses decide uh, what the right sort of content or wording or message is probably a better word is for their users? Um, well, I think when when you've established that you need to create some content, it's it's always important to get everyone in a room and like absolutely everyone you can really and come together to create um, a user need, which is, is very important that you almost create this user need and you use a story. Yeah. And it's it's very different from an organization's need. So, you know, an organization might want to tell you necessarily about how long they've been running and all the processes they have, but actually does the user need to know that? So it's very important to have a user story and a need before producing content. Yeah, so it's almost like starting with the end in sight, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. and, it, and it helps. Um, it helps everyone within the within the organisation, whether it's you know whether you're a one two person kind of marketing department or whether you're working for a huge corporate. Um, everyone involved with the creation, the content creation process, should have empathy for the user, mm. and actually establishing a, a user need and a user story will always kind of help you come back to that original empathy for your user. Yeah. So, for example, uh, this this is a really good example because it's scalable. Yeah. Let's let's presume we're working with a local MOT and servicing garage, and a, so a user story for them could be: I'm a busy office worker who wants to book an MOT. I need to have my car picked up and dropped off at work, so I can have my car road legal and ready for the weekend. Yeah. So, for example, having um, information like you know, if they wrote information about what they use for the MOT or what order they check things, isn't necessary. For that user's need, yeah, the user doesn't care necessarily about what what they don't need to know about. They just want to easily be able to see from that page or through an app or whatever you are designing to be able to see what office, uh, services they offer and if there's a pickup and drop off service, how they can book it, what location that covers, where to be, uh, where to find the garage, and how to contact them. So they're all things that will actually directly meet a user need rather yeah. than just kind of 
a, a lot of a lot of businesses they're fulfilling an organization need to sort of inform the user about what they feel is important to them but actually it's an internal importance yeah it's tremendously powerful actually working in that way i mean we do a very similar thing in software development we have this notion of a user story where if we're developing a piece of software for someone, um, rather than sort of go down the technical path immediately and think of all the th- different things we could do, we start off with, well, what's the user looking for? It's a very similar process, and it's very, very good at sort of shaving off all of those sort of tangents you could go off on, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's very important that each piece of content that you produce, whether it's a singular page or an app or whatever, is always focused on fulfilling that user need. And then it's continuously iterated until it meets that acceptance criteria. Yeah. Because the, essentially the user needs to achieve something for the content, whether it's, you know, extracting information from the page or be able to perform a function on an app. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's always it's always tempting for some people if, if they, you know, they want to add loads of design in there, make it look really attractive or add loads of really snazzy functionality. But actually what you want to do is effectively communicate with the user in the most human way in yeah. what they see, yeah. um, whether it's a user interface or a page of content, you know, and that's that's what GDS have obviously done really well is it's speaking directly to their to their user and giving them the information they need more or less upfront straight at the top of the page. Um, so like, you know, I think it's always important that when designing content, you use the language that your users use. So this is when you need to consider SEO best practices and keyword volumes, but yeah. also remember that you're designing the content to communicate with the human being. So there are points where you do need to let common sense choose where to draw the line for your specific business uh, or project. And that, that's when that's when kind of brand identity and everything comes down to it. But mm. we have had situations with clients where despite potentially helping something rank more, it does make sense from a user experience perspective to word something slightly differently. So it, that, that's when the knowledge of a brand internally does come in really useful. Yeah. So what are some concrete things you can do then to get this, This when I mean, you mentioned getting the language right, what are some things you can do to achieve that goal? <laughs> it's the, the, golden, the golden point is, uh, is testing. So yeah. testing, testing, testing. So um, quantitative data and qualitative data, always a mouthful to say. But yeah, you can't argue with data like you can with personal opinion. And some brands that we've worked with or I've worked with in the past have a very uniform way of, of, of speaking to their target audience. And some brands that we've had, they have real sort of internal struggles about it. So the main, the main thing is to always test your assumptions about your users and prove your concept for your concept for content production. Mm. Um, it could be a really expensive project for website design. You know, having to prove your hypotheses to senior teams to justify the spending. It is, it's a known sort of saying in UX that you're always usually wrong about your users. So potentially doing proper testing will help you save money and and a potential redesign in the long run. And um, so, for example, I've worked with businesses that. I worked with a business actually that created an app to work with their product, but they didn't collect any data about their user first and mm. just purely worked on the aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and then it turned out that the app was actually so hard to use, it actually lost them a large amount of their customer base, which Ooh. they obviously spent a lot of money on marketing to attain or retain. Ouch in the utmost. Uh, and then, you know, obviously then that increased their customer service costs, which we worked out, which was nearly 50%. Oh. 
So then all costs which could have then been saved by proper testing. And I think people get put off by initial cost of testing, um, especially qualitative when, you, when you're doing it in person in focus groups and such. But actually, there was a study done recently in the US that found that 82 percent of US consumers bail on brands after bad commu- uh, customer service. Yeah, that doesn't surprise um, me. Yeah, which was something yeah. that was published on TechCrunch. And it's yeah. like, you know, it's 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 a it's a killer, <laughs> yeah. really, but it's worth doing. Absolutely. So, yeah, so quantitative data, I know some of our listeners are, get slightly confused by the difference between quantitative data and, well, I certainly do. I'm putting it onto my listeners now. Quantitative <laughs> data and qualitative data. Just give us a, a bit of an example and just chat briefly over the two different things. Yeah, so um, quantitative data. Um, so that is, well, I mean, at Site Visibility, we use Google Analytics, yeah. uh, data from Keyword Planner, SEMrush, DAT, Google Trends, Moz, BuzzSumo. So it's essentially hard numbers, which will tell you which terms or keywords are not only the highest search, but also the most popular at different times of the year. So typically covering a, a higher number of your user audience. Um, so it will help you find out favored terms over another term, i.e. so um, something like car rental versus car hire. So it can help you make key decisions in terms of what you might put on um, your homepage, for example, or title tags where you want to to rank, but also use the most commonly searched terms. So it helps to uh, kind of kill any internal arguments about which is the favored term. It's just hard data to prove which one's the, the correct one to use. Yeah. And then uh, qualitative data is so user testing anything from phone video interviews surveys Mm. actually working directly face to face with a focus group to ask someone to actually complete a function on your website or app and observing how they use the product or interact with it Um, if it's a piece of printed content getting them to colored uh, color it in with pens of which is easy to understand what's not easy to understand Mm. Um, and this this kind of data is Tech, you know, usually typically be done with a smaller number of user audience in a focus group. Um, but you can, if you can't do it in person, you can also use platforms or tools for this. So um, usertesting.com, usersnap, usability hub, and userzoom are all ones that we've kind of used at times and that I've heard of as the most popular ones for that, really. Yeah, sure. And presumably the more sort of data you've got like this and uh, sort of proof of the language and behaviours of the users, the better your content's going to be. Absolutely. Um, and it is really important to, when when looking at your, and thinking of your users within a target audience, you know, create user personas, because there might typically be maybe three different personas that use your content. It's really good to give them names, introduce these people to anyone who's working on the product or project. Um, again, it makes it more human and it really increase buy-in from stakeholders as and, and those kinds of people as it makes them feel empathy for the user. So mm. really re-identifies them with who they're trying to connect with. Yeah. So going on a sort of procedural slant here, I yeah. mean, once you've got all this, you know, you've, you've got this data from your testing, you've learned what the phrases are that the, your sort of audience are using, maybe you've thought about key terms and things. What's the next step? What do you actually do with all this information? Well, the, the next step is definitely the, the kind of guides that you're going to create for your, for your organization or your brand. Yeah. So these would be things like tone of voice documents, brand guidelines um, or content guides. Um, so really good examples of brands that are doing this well. MailChimp has a fantastic content guide. Um, Uber has a good one. Sana has a really good one. And mm. so does The Guardian. 
And it just ensures that everyone within your organization or any freelancers that work with you know how best to communicate with your users. Mm. Um, It also really kills any kind of assumptions or egos um, within the organization of people being like, well, I know our users really well and I've met them loads. So I know, you know, no, test it, you know, especially if you work in digital marketing. If the content isn't successful from a traffic or conversion, you know, revenue point of view, you can show you actually had data in the first instance to, to prove it was created to meet the needs of your user, Yes, um, which can help if something doesn't go right. You know, it, it helps you justify that actually you did it based on data and not because you went, oh, I just thought this was the right thing to say. Mm. So it can definitely help later on. Um, but also having design guidelines. So if you do work with UX designers and UI designers or potentially like you were saying, you know, software designers, making sure that it's communicated consistently and, and functions well uh, with, with the product. So, you know, not using lorem ipsum, for example, on a prototype, use actually the real content, work work with the UI designers. Yeah. So real content of how the app or the desktop page will appear, um, as it might actually improve the de- design layout in the end. And actually, if you show real content to user testing, you're going to have much better feedback than if it's just Laura Mipson. I know that, uh, because I've spoken to you before, that that you're sort of very uh, an advocate of using the active voice rather than the passive voice. And uh, tell us a bit about that, because I I always get the two very mixed up. (laughs) I think a lot of people do. So it's what it comes down to is the active voice is speaking directly to the user. So you can book this MOT by clicking on this link. You know, that's the active voice. Yes. The passive voice voices, there is a link to click to book. You know, it's like yeah. it's speaking about it in a in a very removed way or in a kind of strange way when people say, This can be performed. It's like, no, you can perform the task. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. better. And just using, you know, for anything, use short sentences, don't use any jargon, no acronyms. And and one thing we see a lot is internal language, internal organizational language on public facing pages. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when you do any kind of content design, when you recommend these things, they think that you're almost like dumbing down the content, but it's actually you know, there are, there are millions of functionally illiterate, dyslexic people in the country, people with learning difficulties. You know, you actually find a, a large amount of the population, the older population, mm. actually left school a lot earlier than people do now. Yeah. So, you know, it's not it's not their fault, but they don't they might not be able to read it to that level. So it's actually putting everyone on an equal playing field, which is actually quite difficult to do. It's not dumbing it down. It's not making it simple. It, it's actually making sure that everyone can understand what you're trying to say and actually I've, I've always really liked the the quote you know how well we communicate is determined not by how well we say things but how well we're understood yes so yeah. i mean we i've seen it on an academic website where they they write things in an academic context and it's kind of you know they might be communicating to students or new starters and it's like you don't yeah if, if you're writing a philosophy paper yes use that language but actually on their website just speak clearly just speak in plain english you mentioned this earlier, actually. I'm, I'm guessing that once you've got this content sort of established and it's down there, you keep retesting it. Is that would that be right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's so important to to iterate content, make sure that it's always relevant. You know, don't don't. I think one thing we see a lot with with websites that we audit is where businesses have let their website just get huge and just keep chucking on more content without actually reviewing what they've got and seeing if there's actually a page that can currently 
service the same user needs yeah. So we had uh, we have a, a client that provides uh, kind of like a communication technical service, and they we we did an audit for them, and there were there were four pages where they could have had one in a, in a lot of different situations yeah. per service they offered. Which then you know the bigger your website is, the more expensive it is to maintain. Yeah. But also from a SEO point of view, if you have pages that are all about the same thing, they're probably using similar keywords, which could potentially lead to cannibalization of your traffic. So it, which will be detrimental to your SEO and your, to your rankings. So if you had some top tips or, or some takeaways for our audience today, and you had to boil it down to, I don't know, maybe three top tips, what would they be? Definitely, uh, definitely the one that I just mentioned. So iterating your content, yeah. make sure it's always relevant. But mainly, the, the overriding thing is to always get someone to proof your work before it's sent to a client or published um some really effective ways you can do this is by doing a content crit so getting your content up in a room maybe of two three different people and just getting them to go nuts on it basically um in in a very unbiased kind of very impersonal way just be straight up about it yeah pair writing works really well it's something that i do with the content executive here uh chloe we both, if we're writing for the same client, we'll do pair writing. So I'll write something, she'll write something, and then we'll swap and crit each other's work. Do you literally share the keyboard like in pair programming? <laughs> to be fair, with that, with that good mates, we probably would. Um, <laughs> but, but no, we, we, we do sit next to each other. So. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, no one, not at all, you know, regardless of how experienced you are, no one is beyond making spelling or grammar mistakes. Mm. Um, create Create a system for writing. So when you actually begin this process, make sure that everyone within the content sort of team or anyone on the project in general knows what the process is for proofing, editing, approval, and then publishing. Yeah. Trello boards work really well for this. I know a lot of people use um, Agile, Kanban boards, Scrum yeah. boards, things like that. Just give yourself a system because it, it makes it, you actually end up saving a lot of time. And it's so easy to just inform the whole team, including the account managers, of who's doing what, what the progress is, are there any blockers? And actually, if you have people away on holiday or new starters, it makes it a lot easier to get those people back in on what's going on. Well, Tess, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, how can our listeners find out more about you, what you do at Site Visibility and indeed Site Visibility? And indeed, Site Visibility. Well, obviously, yes, follow us. Um, site Visibility on Twitter, at Site Visibility. And my Twitter is at Tess underscore Underhill, like the Hobbit. Um, although my Twitter, I, I will warn you, it's mostly pictures of our office dog Tango or me ranting at train companies or brands with a really bad UX <laughs> um, or customer service. And and I do actually post up about, a lot about techno. So, yeah, be prepared for that. But, but yeah, by all means, follow us. And, and yeah, definitely get in touch with us at Site Visibility if um, any of the things I've spoken about today sound like challenges you're facing and you could use a hand brilliant and just to reiterate uh your twitter handle is uh tess that's double s t t e double s underscore underhill yeah the underscore not spelled out and underscore and then spelled out underhill two l's at the end of it brilliant okay well thanks tess and thanks for our listeners as always show notes in the usual place sitevisibility.co.uk slash im podcast if you're enjoying the show please leave us a review because that's that would help us to get you know the show to more people and help more people if you've got questions or suggestions the email is podcast at sitevisibility.co.uk you can tweet at sitevisibility we have a site visibility group on linkedin that's all from me andy and it's all from tess thank you very much for listening guys bye
Thanks, Tess, and we'll see you next time on Internet Marketing.